Welcome to our 11th episode of Two Tankers and a Cad. We're your hosts, Charlie. And I'm Russell. We are going to tell you right now about Lightning. Lightning the Cat has been, how do I say this, a very cool cat. Here in southeast Kansas, uh, the temperature dropped down to what last night, Russ? Oh, wow. It was probably in the single digits for sure. I think about seven degrees was the low. So seven degrees, and here's Lightning laying on the heater vents. We've got to get video of her. She, she'll be walking around the house, and as soon as she hears the heater warm enough to kick on, she runs straight for the heater vents and just flops down like, oh. Yep. I'll catch her every once in a while. She'll roll over on her back, and she just soaks up the heat. Well, again, if you hear thumps, bumps, and stuff like that, that's going to be the lightning of the cat. We really cannot control her. She is one of the longest cats I've ever seen. Yes, she is truly a long cat. <laughs> hey, I wanted to give out uh, some shout-outs um, uh, on Facebook. We had a really cool guy named Doug Kibbe, and he had had a picture that he took in 1971 of the, was it the M2? The T5, the, the medium tank T5, yeah. The medium t- T5 that he took when it was originally at the Patton Museum. And uh, I was like, Wow. Yeah, that that's pretty cool. But we also got a comment from a guy named Mike Haynes, I think it was, and he was wondering if we were, uh, you know, actual tankers. And I'm like, me and Russ are professional tankers. <laughs> well, okay, okay. We're, again, we're Charlie likes to fib every once in a while. We're we're digital tankers. Yes, we are digital tankers. Uh, is what we are. Uh, we uh, never served in the military. Uh, we have great respect for these guys. Oh, for sure, yes. But like I said, we are just two cops that love um, military history, and we love tanks. Yes. And we have traveled all over and uh, seen different tank museums. I mean, we've been to what, Georgia, and oh, Texas, wow. Oklahoma. I need to actually keep calculating the number of miles we have traveled just to see tanks to be honest with you i I know it keeps growing every year because we've been down to arizona new mexico Uh, we've drove clear out just to do wild you know things just to go out and see one little tank yes so uh uh, so i guess to answer uh mike haynes's question uh, he was like uh, he says, I listened to one of your episodes and wasn't impressed. I'm like, well, if you're not impressed, tell us what we're doing wrong. Yes, exactly. You give know, us a, we, we give us a line on our contact. Uh, we always say in every episode, if you're, we, if we're doing something wrong, people let us know, you know, um, I think Rob, how do you say Rob's last name? Rob Kogan. Yeah. I, I say his name wrong every time. And he's like, well, you know, Charlie's you know, a nice guy, but he's not very good at names. Yeah. Every time I try to do a German city or a French city, <laughs> yeah. I, I kill it wrong. Ooh, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our uh, female listeners, uh, Sharon Foster in Adrian, Missouri. She actually said, hey, uh, I was wanting to listen to your uh, podcast and I did it on my Google Home. And I said, well, I wrote back, well, what do you mean? And she goes, I just said, uh, hey, Google, play 
two tankers and a cat podcast and it came up with the latest episode oh sweet so i was like all right hey, so if it's pretty sweet if you got google home now you can just say well, two tankers yeah, and a cat that is sweet uh, so i tested it on mine and sure enough it popped up and i was amazed yeah sharon thanks for for actually telling us about that that that's pretty neat well today's episode um people are gonna go why are you doing an episode on this um, because I like the look of the tank. It's uh, the Cruiser Mark One, and uh, we're going to talk about it. it. Had two different guns, the two pounder. I hate the two pounder gun. <laughs> I hate it. I, I don't know why they ever made this two pounder gun. Uh, but it came with a, I think a ninety-two millimeter howitzer or something like that. We'll get into the stats or. Russ is a stat guy. He'll get us into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about the cruiser tank. And then at the end, we are going to talk uh, about the, one of the biggest battles the cruiser uh, Mark one was in and uh, it was operation battle Axe. Now people are going to go, why are you talking about the operation battle Axe? It was a complete failure for the British. And I'm like, well, Okay, I'll explain when we get to that point, I guess. Lightning, get off my oh, mic. Oh, man, Lightning, what are you doing up here? <laughs> you want to say a few words to the folks out there? Uh, no. Oh, come on. No. Good sport. She You'll just, sniff my glass, though, won't you? She wants your tea. <laughs> yeah. We have video of the cat drinking yeah, tea. Yeah, she likes iced tea. So, now we're going to get people sending us hate mail. Oh, oh tea's bad for cats. no. I'm like, no. She hasn't died yet, I promise. <laughs> She's laying here with her tail wagging. So. And trust me, that cat has better health care than I do. <laughs> yeah. She goes to the vet more than I, you know, go to the doctor. Russ, start us off uh, when it start, you know, when it was built and when they started doing stuff with the cruiser. Yeah, the uh, British Cruiser Tank Series actually started in 1938. The Cruiser Tank also called the Calvary Tank or Fast Tank. Uh, the cruiser tank concept was a British tank concept of the interwar period for tanks designed to function as modernized, armored, and me- mechanized cavalry. Cruiser tanks were developed after the Royal Armored Corps were not satisfied with many of the medium tank designs of the 1930s. So, the British had a standing thing with um how do i say this infantry tanks like the matilda and uh, the churchill uh they were slow i i think even the valentine tank yes was extremely slow but they knew they needed a light tank that moved pretty quick and the cruisers were a uh, part of that deal and the uh, cruisers actually evolved later on into the cromwell and the comet and the meteor um, give us some more information. Yeah, the cruiser tank concept was conceived by Gifford Lequesne Martel, who preferred many small light tanks to swarm the enemy instead of a few expensive medium tanks. There were two main types of cruiser tanks. They had light cruiser tanks and heavy cruiser tanks. Light cruiser tanks were lightly armored and relatively fast, for example, the cruiser Mark I, while the heavier, heavy cruiser tanks were more heavily armored and slightly slower than light cruiser tanks. For example, the cruiser Mark II. 
The tank, the Cruiser Mark I, was the first cruiser tank, a fast tank designed to bypass the main enemy lines and engage the enemy's lines of communication, along with enemy tanks. The Cruiser Mark II was a more heavily armored adaptation of the Mark I, and it was developed at much the same time. So the Cruiser Mark II was the heavier tank, and it was supposed to hit the main enemy lines and engage enemy tanks, but the Cruiser Mark I was the light tank, and they were supposed to race around the side flank and hit the supply lines and communication lines. Exactly, yes. Smart idea. It is. It is a very smart idea. The Mark I Cruiser began to be delivered in January of 1939. The Cruiser was an effective tank in the French, Greek, and early North African campaigns. The two-pounder gun was lethal against the early Italian tanks encountered during the North African campaign. But I want to cut in right here. The Italian tanks, um, I'm hoping Russ, uh, I want him to do an episode on the Italian tanks. They actually had a tankette, and it was a little bitty tank. I've read about tankettes, yeah. And these poor little tankettes run across this Mark (laughs) I, and it is like, you know, the German mouse tank against, I don't know, Jeeps. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, go ahead and give us some uh, information. Now, were these little tankettes, did they only have one one crewman? Uh, no, I think, or they have two. I, I think it was two like a car okay. and a machine gun. We have to do an episode. I know. I, I, I really uh, want to do some research it, on that. You know, and again, uh, we have to point out we are not making fun of the Italians. No, nope. You know, uh, Got nothing to do with it. Nope. But I'm pretty sure these uh, Italian tankettes had a Ferrari engine. <laughs> so they're cruising <laughs> hey, around in a Ferrari, Ferrari with a machine gun. So Heck it yeah. actually sounds like a good idea, but <laughs> probably not. The two-pounder guns was lethal against the early Italian tanks encountered during the North African campaign and could hold its own against Rommel's early Panzer IIs and threes. Mm-hmm. The Mark I's two-pounder gun could also breach the 20 to 30 millimeters of protective steel on later opponents, such as the Panzer 3D and the Panzer 4D variants. It was effective until the Germans introduced the more thickly armored Panzer 4E variant to the desert in the spring of 1941. Again, people are saying, no, the two-pounder was accurate and it would go through these uh, Panzer, you know, twos and threes and all the way up to the Panzer 4E variant. And uh, I'm like, I just still don't like the two-pounder. I know. Man. You could have easily put the six-pounder on it, but I guess... That's what they had, and you go with what you have. Yeah, you're right. You said it right there. You know. Use what they've got. The Mark I cruiser's minimal armor made it very vulnerable to most Axis anti-tank weapons. Also problematic was the lack of high-explosive shells for the two-pound gun, and even worse, the lack of armor-piercing shells for the 94-millimeter gun on the close-support version. Another issue was that the areas around the front machine gun turrets created a frontal surface that was more vulnerable to enemy fire than it would have been had it been a flat plate, let alone a sloped glacis. 
So basically what they're saying is the machine guns that they put on the front of it really wasn't needed and made it a, have a weak spots. But there's that 94. I mean, Russ, be honest. If you had two tanks in front of you and one had the two-pounder gun or the 94, what are you going to take? Oh, I would definitely take the, the 94 millimeter gun in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you over 40 millimeters? I mean, that's that's crazy. Uh, you go for the big boom. Well, yeah. The mechanical unreliability of the cruiser was also a disadvantage. In particular, the tracks were easily slewed, causing difficulties. Well, we again, we're talking about the cruiser. Um, they had to send these out to the desert. And as soon as they sent them out to the desert, they had immediately set it up for the sand because the sandstorms and they had to use the filters and everything. Give us some specs on the cruiser. As we know, I mean, the place of origin was the United Kingdom. The cruiser Mark I was in service between 1938 and 1941, and it was used by the British Army during the Second World War. Uh, the designer was Sir John Carden. It was designed between the time period of about 1934 to 1936, and it was manufactured by the Vickers Company. Good old Vickers. Yeah, we've heard that name before, I mm-hmm. think. It's well, Vickers Tanks. Yeah, sure, yeah. And the Mark I was actually produced by the Vickers Company between 1936 and 1941. They had about 125. So they only built about 125 of them. Yeah, not a lot. They were about 12.8 long tons, which comes out to about a 13-ton tank. That was the battle weight. They were 19 feet long. Not a small tank. Really? No. Compared to some we've talked about, not small in length. It was about 8 foot 4 inches wide and about 8 foot 8 inches tall. Well, it's shorter than Lee. Well, that is true. <laughs> That's exactly what I was getting ready to say, too. Yeah. How, many, how many crew? It had a crew of six. It had a commander, a gunner, a loader, a driver, and two machine gunners. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that they put the machine guns up front, and those were actually weak spots in the uh, tank. Yep, I can see that. True. What kind of armor did it have? The armor um, varied anywhere between about 6 and 14 millimeters. Uh, give me the 14 millimeters. Exactly. <laughs> I will take the, the 14. And what was the main ar- armament? Yeah, the main armament was the QF Vickers 2-pounder, which also comes out to about 40 millimeters or 1.57 inches. Uh, it also had three .303 Vickers machine guns. Well, that's de- definitely good for any any infantry yes it is and it also came with the 94 yes it also came with the 94 millimeter gun um they called that the close support version of the tank a major weakness of the cruiser mark one a9's tanks two pounder gun was that it could not fire he high explosive shells that were needed to destroy enemy artillery anti-tank guns and soft skin vehicles so basically, the two pounder was okay for Pearson anti tank, you know, at the time, the Panzer IIs, the threes, even up to the fours to certain uh, variants of that. 
but when it came to knocking out machine gun nests, anti-tank guns, and tank or even trucks, that you need an HE round. That is true. Yes. Yeah, the high explosive shells, that's what they were used for. Now, did the British War Office consider this a problem or uh apparently they didn't consider it a problem. Um the A9 was a cruiser tank and intended to fight enemy tanks. Concentrations of enemy infantry and guns would be left to specialized infantry tanks. Early experience against German combined arm tactics in the desert in 1941 showed the fallacy of this concept. German tanks were always supported by Panzer grenadiers, anti-tank guns, artillery, and when available, the Air Force. Now, we're going to get into the uh, Operation Battle Axe, and I'm going to talk about Rommel and stuff like that, and why Rommel failed and why the British failed in a lot of spots. And this is going to get me some hate mail because I'm going to say some negative stuff about Rommel. And I'm also going to say some negative stuff about Churchill. That's what we're here for. Yep. I mean, we're here to, to talk about history. Yep. Uh, to, to, to deal with this problem, a few A9s were altered and fitted with a 3.7-inch 94-millimeter howitzer. They fired HE high explosive and smoke shells to provide cover for maneuvers by the two-pounder armed tanks. They were attached in small numbers to squadron and regimental headquarters. And the Army gave them the designation Tank Cruiser Mark I CS, or close support. So when you hear the Cruiser Mark I and it's got a CS, that means it's got the 94 uh, millimeter uh, yes, howitzer. Exactly. That's what that means, yes. So, okay. What kind of rounds in secondary armament we're talking about? Yeah, the these particular ninety four mm these particular close support tanks uh carried about a hundred rounds. They had a secondary armament of three point three zero three Vickers machine guns with about three thousand rounds for those machine guns. Three oh threes. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that'll tear you up if you get hit by one of those babies. Yeah. So Definitely kind of, knock you down. What kind of engine? It had an AEC 179 six-cylinder petrol engine. So we're talking what? 150 uh, horsepower. Wow. Yes. And what kind of suspension? It had a sprung triple-wheel bogey suspension. Its what? operational range was about 150 miles. That's not bad. Not bad at all. And a speed of about 25 miles an hour. Now, everybody's saying, well, you know, that's only going 25 miles an hour. you got to remember, the Churchill and the Matilda were going a lot slower. They, yes. they were geared where they wouldn't get ahead of the infantry. And I did a little experiment myself and found out that if you were doing 25 miles an hour across open country, it feels like you are just being rattled to death. <laughs> and, and so for... Anybody, you know, saying, oh, yeah, tanks should be able to go at least 40. 40 over rough terrain, that's hard on the I body. I think that would just beat the crap out of you. Yeah. So at 25, that's pretty good speed. It is. And, and you can't do much more in these yeah. old tanks. I mean, you're just liable being, to rattle apart if you did I, a whole lot faster than that. I don't think there were seatbelts in these things either. <laughs> what are you talking about? We didn't even have seatbelts in the 1970s in the vehicles. So. Oh, that's true. <laughs> the Cruiser Mark I was a transitional model since the start. 
the first true cruiser being the Mark III. Like the cruiser Mark II, its design was badly flawed and the model itself soon obsolete with the cruiser Mark I. Yeah. So that's probably why they only made 100, what, 125, 150 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 125 is how many they made. That's not a lot of tanks when you no. consider the M4 had 50,000. Very true. On the Cruiser Mark I, the suspension pitched around on uneven ground, and the tracks often just fell off, <laughs> slowed and twisted during trials and later in operation. Probably not bad for <laughs> desert combat <laughs> yeah. there. The three-turreted configuration was also proven unsuitable, creating many shot traps and increasing the crew number for such a small tank. Yeah, because six people in a tank. Oh, yeah, in a small tank like that. Ooh. Talk about cramped. It would be cramped spaces, yes. The weak bolted hull and the coil springs bogies were also already obsolete by 1941. Wow. The A-9 was relatively fast, however, and the two-pounder 40-millimeter gun was, in effect, very efficient against most Axis tanks until the end of 1941. So... They're not complaining about the two-pounder too much, even though I complain about it. There, it's just the coils and just the whole manufacturing of the tank. Yeah, that's you what know, that's what it sounds like. It, yeah, it was just falling apart. Just falling apart. So I, I can see where the British are going to have some real serious problems, you know, with their tanks just breaking down and falling apart yeah. while in combat. The first A9s delivered were shipped to France, part of the first armored division of the British Expeditionary Force. Most were easy prey for the German 37mm guns and the Panzer III. Many were lost during the evacuation at Dunkirk. So, when the Germans did invade France, they had these tanks there, but against those anti-tank guns... Not much of a chance. Not much of a chance. The bulk of the next batch of the Cruiser 1s was sent to Africa where most saw action until 1941 with the 2nd and 7th Armored Divisions. Another batch was sent to Greece to help the Greek Army engaged against German forces in April through May of 1941. All those tanks were lost. By the end of 1941, all surviving Cruiser 1s were removed from the front line and kept for training. So, basically, they sent these tanks to you know help the greeks out and they all got wiped out or broke down so bad they couldn't salvage them and the ones in north america or north africa were sent back just to train people how to drive a tank well that's some really amazing stuff about the cruiser mark one um again uh, russ is going to put some pictures on uh, facebook and uh, our web page of the cruiser mark one but remember to throw some uh, pictures of the 94 millimeter Yes, oh yeah. And then people can judge what gun they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to get into Operation Battle Axe. First off, let's set the stage. Uh, The Italians had declared war and were fighting against the British in Africa. And they had some moderate successes and stuff like that. But there was a, uh, basically General O'Connor, I believed his name was, and uh, he had helped beat the Italians in uh, Ethiopia and started in the North African campaign. And, you know, the Italians basically were falling apart. They were losing the war. And uh, Mussolini had contacted uh, 
Hitler and said, hey, listen, we're about to be kicked out of North Africa. And Hitler's like, oh, I, you know, I'll send somebody down there to stabilize. And he says, I'll send uh, one of my best generals and we'll send a panzer group down there and they'll stabilize it for you. You can hold on and then you can eventually send supplies and more troops and then you can make another offensive. But we'll keep you on the land, basically, because Hitler really wasn't interested in North Africa. Remember, while I'm talking about this, Hitler is getting ready for Operation Barbarossa and he's taking all his stuff to get ready to, you know, hit the Russians. And uh, I'm going to try to convince Russ to do a, a battle talk on Operation Barbarossa soon. But um, so Hitler contacts Rommel and says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down and stabilize it, push the British back, hold the lines, and I'm going to give you a panzer group. And I th- think he gave him panzer group 15. Rommel goes down there with uh, uh, his panzer group and he meets the Italian general down there. The Italian general and Rommel don't get along really well. You know, he's like, hey, I'm in charge. And, you know, Rommel knew Hitler had sent him down there to stabilize the situation. So the Italian general, his name was Garibaldi. And he's like, hey, you know, we're going to be working together and this is what we need to do. And Rommel's like, listen, I'm I'm down here for a reason. You got whipped. I'm down here to make sure everything doesn't fall apart. You had your chance. You blew it. I'm in charge. That was Rommel's thinking, apparently. Rommel gets down there with his 15th Panzer Group and just catches the British with their pants down. You know, they were used to fighting the Italians. The Italians were falling back. And all of a sudden, there's the Desert Fox. He pushes them and pushes them and pushes them all the way to be uh, Trebrook. I can never say names right. Tobruk? Yeah, thank you. He gets all the way there, and there's an Australian commander that's like, hey, uh, we're not going anymore. We're not retreating. We're going to dig in. So he digs in with anti-tank guns and everything, and Rommel's like, "Uh, well, uh, just send some guys over there, wipe them out. I'm sure they'll run. Well, this Australian guy is like, no, we're not going to run. So he gets in there and just smashes them cold. This boom. And Rommel's like, uh, so things are starting to stabilize. But remember, Hitler had told Rommel, don't go past this point. You're supposed to stabilize, not go on the offensive. What's Rommel do? He does a big push. So now, (laughs) Churchill hears about Rommel, you know, whipping everybody in there. And of course, Rommel's video and news and propaganda stuff is going back and they're catching wind of it. That, you know, they've got the British on the line, you know, on the ropes. So he's contacting uh, the uh, general that was actually in charge, uh, this guy named Waverly uh, or Wavell. Now, Wavell, people are going to make fun of him and say that it was his fault and everything. But you got to remember, this is the guy that had like three continents. He had eight countries that he was in charge of. And besides all that, He's got to do with all the allies and the tribal uh, Arabs and Egypt and Turkey. And, uh, uh, you know, the Russians are about to be attacked. And, and they're worried about, you know, the Axis coming down through uh, Turkey into Syria. And he's got to do all this. And he's got to spread all this out. And he's doing a really good job. 
and then all of a sudden they got, you know, Rommel with a Panzer division pushing through, and he's got to stop and reorganize and everything. And like, uh oh, I need to get ready for this. Well, Churchill wants to get, you know, wipe Rommel off the map and gets gets him out of there. So he's screaming at Wavell, saying, "Hey, get him out of here!" And he goes, "Hey, I, you know, I, I need tanks, I need men, I need this." They actually uh, hook up a thing called um, uh, that called the Tiger Line, uh, you know, this Operation Tiger. The normal British stuff that their supplies were coming from England around the Horn of Africa and then up through the Suez Canal. Churchill is in such a rush. He's like, no, no, hit him hard, hit him hard, hit him now, hit him now. He goes into the Mediterranean with his ships and he loads up the tanks and stuff like that and sends it straight through the Mediterranean, which is basically controlled by the Axis. And uh, I think in the Battle of Crete, they actually, the Axis took the Crete and Waverly uh, lost his air support. They had airplanes and bombers there and all of a sudden that's gone. So he's like, uh, now I'm short airplanes and everything. So he sends these, uh, Churchill sends it through the Mediterranean, which is probably a bad idea. I guess one of the boats sunk had 52 of these tanks that he needed for this oh, offensive. No. So somewhere in the bottom of the Mediterranean right now is a ship with 52 oh, tanks on wow. it. So he loses 52 tanks. And when he gets there, they're not capable of unloading that fast. The, the cranes that they're using to lift the tanks off, they're having to do different things, and, and it's slow going. And he's saying, go, go, go. So Wavell starts to, you know, plan this Operation Battle Axe. Here you got Rommel, who's disobeyed orders, and this Garibaldi, the Italian general, is screaming at him, saying, hey, you're, you're going too far. If you guys break down my infantry, my Italian troops going to be caught with no support and we're going to be in a world of trouble and churchill's screaming hey you know go 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 and hitler's telling rommel stop 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 (laughs) (laughs) so he's not opposed to be doing this but he keeps going so he's actually disobeying orders and and attacking and he was supposed to be stabilizing and uh you know and and rommel's sitting there screaming hey give me more gas give me more divisions I'll, i'll take this whole thing and the people back in the German high command are telling Rommel, hey, listen, we told you to stop. You are not getting these supplies. They told the Italians, they're like, hey, listen, are you going to be able to supply these guys? And, of course, the Italians at the time were like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll supply Rommel. It's not a problem. We'll send all this stuff down. That, that didn't work out so well. So they were counting on the Italians to send them all this stuff, and they were sending them. They were sending stuff, you know, they were sending supplies, but it wasn't nearly enough for Rommel to be making a big push. And Hitler's flat out told him, listen, don't push because I'm getting ready to start Operation Barbarossa. You were supposed to go down there and stabilize until the Italians could reformat and get back on their feet. And then Churchill screaming at this poor guy saying, hey, listen, I'm sending you all these tanks and all this new stuff, you know, go hit them. And he goes, the stuff you're sending me, I, I've got eight countries to defend. Uh, they're screaming for help. And he goes, nope, nope, I sent this stuff, you attack. So he has no choice. He's under 
you know, command from the very top, Winston Churchill telling him, you're going to attack. So he comes up with this plan, battle axe. So, Russ, let's go ahead and talk about the battle operation battle axe. I basically gave you the setting of Churchill screaming, you know, attack, attack, attack. German high command's telling Rommel, slow down, slow down. And the Italian general is telling him, stop. <laughs> so this is where we're at. Operation Battle Axe, June 15th through the 17th in 1941, was an unsuccessful British offensive in North Africa carried out in an attempt to raise the siege of Tobruk. The desert war began with a short Italian advance into Egypt, but the first major move was Operation Compass, a British offensive that turned from a minor raid into a full-scale triumph. The Italians were forced out of eastern Libya, and the British looked to be on the verge of eliminating their presence in Africa. Hitler responded by sending Rommel and the Africa Corps to Libya, and in his first offensive, Rommel pushed the British back to the Egyptian frontier. Only Tobruk held out and would endure a siege that lasted from April to December of 1941. General Wavell, the British commander-in-chief in the Middle East, came under great pressure to lift the siege, but his first attempt, Operation Brevity, May 6th, 15th through 16th of 1941, was an almost instant failure. In Torbuk, uh, we're talking about this Australian, and news is getting back that he's holding them off, and he's surrounded, and he's not giving up. But it's also a port city, and he's getting supplies. He's in a good defensive position. He's got anti-tank guns surrounding him, and Rommel's got Panzer IIs and threes. And everybody's like, well, uh, Rommel had Tigers. First off, let's be honest, the Tigers, there was only 25 ever sent <laughs> to North Africa. Everything else was getting ready for the big push in uh, Barbarossa. You know, he was supposed to go down there and stabilize all that. So there was 25 tigers sent down. And remember, the Americans captured a tiger and the uh, British took a tiger. Our, ours is in, what, Georgia. We yeah, saw that one. Yes. Uh -huh. And the other one was Tank uh, 131 over there in Bovington. All right, give us a little bit on the Axis forces. Operation Battle Axe took place on the Egyptian Libyan border, although the desert battlefields are normally portrayed as almost featureless blank canvases for armored warfare. That wasn't the case here. The right flank was formed by the coastline, which ran west to Solom in Egypt, then turned north to run to Bardia in Libya. The North African campaign from 1940 to 1942, uh, just inland was a massive escar escarpment only passable by tanks at a few locations. This split the battlefield into a narrow coastal strip below the escarpment and the open desert above it. The coast road ran through the coastal strip to Solom, then climbed up to the escarpment to the west of the village to reach Fort Capuzzo, the first Italian strong point inside Libya. From there, the road ran north to Bardia. Just to the west of Fort Capuzzo was Hafid Ridge, also known as Point 208 to the British. Another hill just to the south of Fort Capuzzo was known as Point 206. So basically when people think of, you know, the desert battles, they're thinking about, you know, loose sand and sand dunes and stuff like that. And it's really not, you know, on one side, you got the coast. Yes, you know, you're, the coast not, here, you're not yes. going to be fighting in the water. 
and the rest was rocky foundations with you know passes and stuff like that there's some famous passes why don't you tell us about some of the passes yes the famous Halfaya pass ran up the escarpment linking the coastal strip to the desert it was located just to the south of Solom. Rommel had placed garrisons at Fort Capuzzo, Solom, Musade, Point 206, and Point 208, mainly made up of Italian infantry. Rommel also had a mixed German and Italian force, 500 Germans and about 400 Italians, five 88mm guns, and a battery of ex-French 155mm guns at Alfalia Pass. And it was commanded by the former pastor, Captain Wilhelm Bach. Now, to give you a little history about Bach, when Rommel first meets this guy, who used to be a pastor, he, he's like, not impressed. Rommel was kind of a straight-laced, you know, you know, fresh-pressed suit, you know, uniform. And Bach was kind of a laid-back guy, kind of like, a, didn't press his uniform very well, and... Uh, his uh, troops underneath him called him dad. And, uh, but we come to find out the Bach was a fighter and uh, he, he knew what was going on. And here's the first part of this German 88s. And he's like, you know what? We know the British are going to have to come down this pass. Point them 88s down that way. Rommel's armored strength had increased since his first offensive and the defeat of Operation Brevity. He still had his original armored force, Panzer Regiment 5 of the 5th Light Division, but this was joined by 15 Panzer Division, which arrived in a series of convoys on April 24, May 2nd, and May 6th. This division contained Panzer Regiment 8, which had 45 Panzer 2s, 71 Panzer 3s, 20 Panzer 4s, and 10 command tanks. In total, Rommel had around 200 German tanks at his disposal. Oh, so he's getting ready. But again, he's begging for, you know, the big guns and stuff like that. And all he's getting is these twos, threes, and fours. Yeah. Because everything else, the new Panthers and everything, are, you know, getting ready for the big push into Russia. Exactly. 15 Panzer was posted at the east of Tobruk to support the border defenses. 5th Light Division was south of Tobruk, as was the Italian Ariette Armored Division. The British forces, key to the British attack, were the Tiger Cubs. During the earlier crisis in North Africa, Churchill decided to take the risk of sending a convoy of tanks straight through the Mediterranean instead of the slower but safe route around the Cape of Good Hope. This Tiger convoy arrived at Alexandria almost intact on May 12 and delivered 238 tanks and 43 Hurricanes. These reinforcements didn't arrive in time for Operation Brevity, but General Wavell, the British commander-in-chief in the Middle East, came under severe pressure from Churchill to use them as quickly as possible. Wavell resisted as best as he could, aware that he really needed more time to get the new tanks ready to operate in the desert and their crews familiar with them. So, again, why I told this, you know, to set the stage, Churchill's saying, hey, we got guys surrounded. you got to do something. I've sent you the tanks. I've sent you the airplanes. Hit them hard. Now, we said one of the boats was sank and lost 52 of the tanks, but he still had 
the tanks, uh, you know, that were sent. We said Rommel had, what, 200 tanks total, and now he's got 238. Yeah. Plus 43 Hurricanes, which is, you know, the airplanes that they were going to use for air support. Yes. Against the Luftwaffe. Yep. But here's the whole kicker. These guys get these tanks, and they haven't been trained on them. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and here's a little known fact. Churchill sent those tanks with their regular uh, factory green. He he had desert paint these. So he's like, listen, I, I've got to put on these desert air filters for these things. Oh, or not going. No. i got to paint them, and i got to train my crews. And he goes, oh, nope, 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 hit them in a minute. Not enough time. Wow. During Operation Battle Axe, the British Army in Libya was designated as the Western Desert Force, commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Noel Bresford Pierce. This force was made up of the 4th Indian Infantry Division, which contained the 11th Infantry Brigade, the 22nd Guards Infantry Brigade, which was motorized, and the 7th Armored Division under Major General Craig. Although the 7th Armored Division, the famous Desert Rats, already had an impressive reputation, many of its subunits during battle acts were new to the division. Right, and these subunits were um, units they brought in to you know, booster that uh, division. The division was split into two brigades, the 4th Armored Brigade and the 7th Armored Brigade. The 4th Armored Brigade operated the Matilda II Infantry Tank, a heavy but slow vehicle that had earned the nickname Queen of the Desert because of its thick armored. Now, if you guys don't know, uh, we were talking about how the Cruiser Mark I was very susceptible to these Pac-30s and Pac-40s. Well, they, these anti-tank guns that the Germans had, but when the Matilda was facing the front of them and going right towards them, they just bounce right off. And their tanks, you know, the Panzer Ones and Twos, with their light guns, could not pin the Matilda. So the Matilda was great, but it had one big enemy, 88s. Yeah. 88s will shoot through anything. <laughs> 88s will shoot through a Tiger. The 7th Armored Brigade had two regiments. The 2nd Royal Tank Regiment had two mixed squadrons of A-9 Cruiser Mark I tanks and A-10 Cruiser Tank Mark IIs and a squadron of A-13 cruiser tank Mark III's. The 6th Royal Tank Regiment was given the new Crusader cruiser tanks that had arrived on the Tiger convoy and some older A-13 cruiser tank Mark III's. Sadly, the new Crusaders would prove to be very unreliable, and by the time most of their problems had been fixed, all faith in them had been lost. They would be just about at their worst during the battle axe. But would bre- but would become rather more reliable by the time of LMN. So they get these new Crusader tanks and stuff like that, and they are just breaking down. They are just falling apart. They were not well designed for the desert warfare and everything like that. Just they, they started having all sorts of problems, but they started to fix them. But at the time of Battle Axe, they were junk. And by the time they got them up to the Battle of El Alamein, they had fixed some of the problems and got stabilized, but they had already lost all confidence in that tank. Uh, Wavell is normally portrayed as being unwilling to attack, but is this isn't entirely true. As early as May 25, 
He had signaled to Churchill that the tiger now only needs to grow claws, and on May 28, he indicated that he was willing to attack. He ordered Beresford Pierce to capture the border area from Halfaya Pass to Bardia on the coast and inland to Sidi Aziz, before then defeating German forces near Tobruk. Beresford Pierce came up with a plan for a three-pronged assault near to the coast of the 11th Indian Brigade and one and a half squadrons of infantry tanks from the 4th Armored Brigade would attack Halfaya Pass. So, again, Wavell was not afraid to fight. He's just like, let me train my crews. Let me get these ready. Let, give me some time. And Churchill's like, no, no, attack, attack, attack. To their left, the 22nd Guards Brigade, the rest of the 4th Armored Brigade, and their artillery from the 4th Indian Division would carry out a shallow, outflanking move to attack Fort Capuzzo before turning east to take Solemn. The infantry from this force would then remain at Solemn and Fort Capuzzo while the tanks moved west to join the 7th Armored Brigade. So they did have a plan. I mean... So they're getting ready to do the big fight. The battle began early on June 15th. The coastal attack on Halfaya was the least successful of the three British attacks. Some of the Matilda tanks were immobilized by mines as they approached the pass, and the unsupported infantry attack failed. When the Matildas did get closer to the pass, they came into range of the well-concealed 88mm guns. These were easily able to penetrate the thick armor, and a total of 11 Matildas were lost in the attack. Her time as Queen of the Desert was over. Yeah, and one of the things that they kind of leave out, some of the flair of that battle, um, again, he's got a certain time to attack. He says, we're going to attack at this time. We're going to use artillery support. Well, the artillery goes out in the middle of the sand dune and gets bogged down. Oh. They're, they're stuck out there, and they're really bogged down. He's like, listen, we got to go. We got to go. We got to hit these guys. But the infantry was supposed to shell where these 88s and everything was. He's like, no, no, the, the, probably they got anti-tank guns, but nothing like the 88. So they go forward, and uh, the Matildas are hitting landmines, blowing up. <laughs> and sure enough, the 88s just tore them in half. On the first day, the British armor advanced largely as planned. The 4th Armor Brigade got into a fight with the defenders of Point 206. A first attack without infantry support ended in failure. A second attack, this time with infantry support, captured the position in the evening. In the meantime, the rest of the brigade moved on. Fort Capuzzo was captured at about noon, and a counterattack was defeated. Their supporting infantry then began to dig in. A second counterattack later in the day was also repulsed. So they're winning a little bit. On the left flank, the cruiser tanks of the 7th Armored Brigade reached Hafid Ridge just after 0900 hours, but were then drawn into a protracted battle with the German gun positions on the ridge. The British cruisers lacked a good HE shell and so had to get very close to the German guns to knock them out. And that's where they had that two-pounder problem. Yeah. They, they saw these guns and they're shooting AP or armor piercing at them, when all they had to do was just shoot simple high explosive exactly. and knock them out. By the end of the day, the British had a foothold on the ridge, but hit came at a high cost and lost tanks. The only direct clash with German armor 
was a long-range duel with the leading elements of the 5th Light Division, which were approaching from Sidi Aziz in the north. Although the British had reached many of their objectives, the first day had been very costly. By the time the fighting died down in the evening, they had just under 100 tanks still running. So they started out with 280, and some were knocked out, but the rest had broke down. Broke down. That's an incredible number, so, really. Well, uh, that's a perfect point. Yeah. If you've got 280 tanks, you really don't. Now you're down to 100. Yeah, exactly. Because you've got over 100 that are broke down. The British plan for June 16 was for the 22nd Guards Brigade to defend Capuzzo and send a force east to occupy Solemn. The tanks of the 4th Armor Brigade would move west and complete the occupation of Hafid Ridge. The tanks of 7th Armor Brigade would intercept a German tank force that had been detected approaching from the north. Rommel's plan was for the 8th Panzer Regiment to attack around Fort Capuzzo, while the 5th Light Division was to outflank the British positions to the west, bypassing the forces on Hafid Ridge and made for Sidar Omar to the southwest of the British positions. So good flanking. The division would then turn east, heading for Halfaya Pass in the British rear. The British would be trapped between the two armored divisions. So Rommel's plan was an excellent plan. I mean, his counterattack, he's hitting them in the front and the rear. And the rear, yeah. Rommel's attack disrupted the British efforts. The attack on Fort Capuzzo was defeated, and the Germans lost 50 tanks while attacking towards a line of British guns but it did convince General Messervy not to allow the tanks of the 4th Armored Brigade to move west. By now, Bursford Pierce, who had remained back at C.D. Barani, was losing control of his own force. The most important fighting came on the left flank. Here, the German 5th Light Division, heading south towards C.D. Omar, was harassed by the 7th Armored Brigade in the support group. The German armor generally had the better of the series of battles, but the 7th Armor Brigade handled its tanks well and took advantage of the terrain. By the end of the day, the Germans' advance was stopped around Sidi Omar, and both sides had lost a number of tanks. So, Rommel, that's his first real big loss of tanks. He loses 50. Yeah. But again, the British are down to 100 tanks, and, and they can't afford to lose anymore. Exactly. The British plan for June 17th was to leave 22nd Guards Brigade at Capuzzo while the two armored brigades united to attack the Germans and Sidi Omar. On the Axis side of Rommel, planned to do almost the same. The 8th Panzer Regiment was to join with the 5th Light Division and then head for Halfaya Pass. The British plan very quickly unraveled. 7th Armored Brigade was now down to 25 tanks. Good Lord. Wow. That's 75 that they had lost since the last, man. Down to 25 Exactly. And they had to move east across the frontier to refuel. 4th Armor Brigade's remaining 30 tanks were heading south from Capuzzo, but the two forces wouldn't meet up. So even if they'd met up, his 30 and those 25, what, we're talking 55 tanks? 55 tanks, yeah. Against a, ooh. Yeah, not much of a chance it doesn't look like. By 0430 hours on June 17, the 8th Panzer Regiment had disengaged at Capuzzo and was heading south. General Cray 
commander of the 7th Armored Division, decided that he needed to consult with Bursford Pierce and radioed a request for him to fly to his headquarters for a meeting. Rommel's intercept service heard this message, and this encouraged Rommel to order his two divisions to head straight for Hafalia. This advance began at about 0900 hours. General Messervy realized that he would soon be cut off and ordered his men to retreat from Port Capuzzo. This all happened with, without any real input from Bursar Pierce or Wavell. Wavell approved Messervy's orders, but wasn't happy with the lack of consultation. So Rommel's radio guys, here's this guy saying, uh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm down to 25 tanks. What, 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 what do I do? <laughs> and Rommel's like, Oh, well, here I come now. <laughs> Opportunity. For most of the day, the Germans pressed east towards Safaya Pass, resisted by the surviving Matildas of 4th Armored Brigade. The tables were now turned, and the Matilda briefly regained her crown. The Panzer III struggled to penetrate her armor, and the Germans had advanced ahead of their 88mm guns. As the tanks fought it out to the south of Halfaya Pass, the troops from Capuzzo made their escape. By the time the Germans reached the top of the pass at 1,600 hours, the British had escaped. You know, we're almost like, oh, we, we got them. We got them out in the open. Push, push, push. But they pushed so hard, they got ahead of their 88s, and their 88s couldn't help them. Yeah. yeah. So they were out there with the Matildas that they couldn't pin, and Matildas tore them up. Uh, again, bad allowed, communication. Allowed just enough time for the British to get the crap out of there, man. Well, talk about the aftermath of the battle. The British lost about half of their tanks during the battle. 220 were knocked out at some point during the battle, but only 87 were total write-offs. The rest were eventually recovered and repaired. Even so, this was a heavy blow for Churchill, who had taken such a risk to get the tanks to Egypt in the first place. German losses were much lower, reported at only 25 tanks written off. Rommel's success also helped convince the Italians to send reinforcements to North Africa. Churchill had already begun to lose confidence in Wavell, and had considered swapping him with General Sir Claude Ockley, the British commander-in-chief in India. In the aftermath of Battle Axe, he decided to make that switch, and on June 22, both men were informed of the change. Auchinleck would have an equally stormy time in charge as Wavell. His first offensive, Operation Crusader, was a great success. The siege of Tobruk was raised, and Rommel retreated out of Kryanaka, which is also Libya today. This was a short-lived triumph, as early in 1941, Rommel launched his second offensive, which ended at the Gazala Line. After a pause, Rommel went back into the offensive in the spring of 1942 in the Battle of Gazala and forced Akalekt to retreat back to Egypt. It was now his turn to be removed, and despite successfully holding the Elamine position, he was replaced by General Alexander as commander-in-chief in the Middle East, while Montgomery took command of the 8th Army. Churchill's like, you embarrassed me, you know, this is a great loss, da da and he's like, you told me to do this. And he goes, well, I'm replacing you. So he replaces him. And the guy that he brings in is like, no, this, the first guy's right. You know, our tanks are junk. We need to get this and we need to get that. And he's like, okay, well, you need to attack. So he attacks and then he gets replaced. And they finally bring in Montgomery. Well, it's been an amazing talk, and I know we ran really long, and if you've had to, you know, stop a couple of times to, you know, listen to the podcast, 
we apologize, but it's just so much information, and the battle was so amazing. Now, remember, in our wrap-up, if you got any concerns or comments, let us know. We can't get any better until you tell us what we're doing wrong. Contact information is www.twotankersandacat.com. Uh, the easiest way to contact us is on our Facebook page or call us. You know, yeah. Our phone number is yes. on there. Once again, we hope you enjoyed our podcast. Uh, we are always looking for ways to improve. If you do have some extra cash or something and you want to donate, please do. We're getting new fiber optic cable. Uh, we want to set up a new broadcast table. Uh, we just have so many costs coming in now and we're having a tough time getting everything out. But uh, until next time, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. Happy tanking. And as always, have a great week.